Hey everyone, this is Dr. Blair Peters, and today we'll be mapping gender-affirming surgery and care on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on the clinical relevance of the functional nutrition matrix, the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. The matrix is so important not only because it invites us to stop and assess, but also because it reminds us of three very important factors in our care, our recommendations, and our outcomes. Everything is connected, we are all unique, and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with Dr. Blair Peters. Dr. Blair Peters is an assistant professor in both the Division of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery and Department of Urology at Oregon Health and Science University. He's extensively trained, having attended medical school and completed his residency training in plastic and reconstructive surgery at the University of Manitoba with a special focus on microsurgery. He was awarded the R. Samuel McLaughlin and Dean of Medicine Education and Research Fellowship Awards to pursue further training in advanced peripheral nerve surgery and gender-affirming surgery. He completed his first fellowship in peripheral nerve, hand, and microsurgery at the prestigious Washington University in St. Louis. He's one of the first surgeons in North America to complete an additional fellowship in comprehensive gender-affirming surgery at OHSU in Portland. He strives for clinical innovation and uses his unique training to bring techniques of modern nerve surgery into the field of gender-affirming surgery. His research interests are focused on sensory and erogenous outcomes following genital gender-affirming surgery. Outside of clinical practice, he is both a member and a strong advocate for the LGBTQIA community. He advocates for policy change and increased coverage for gender-affirming surgery and the broader rights of all queer people. He strives to continue to be a strong queer voice in medicine and surgery. Dr. Peters, welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Well, I'm so glad to have you here. And as we were just sort of joking about gender-affirming surgery, which isn't a joking matter, but it's a broad topic and one that deserves a lot more of our attention in functional medicine, in my opinion. And I'm wondering if you could start us off, Dr. Peters, by explaining what gender-affirming care encompasses. Yeah, for sure. So the way that I think of gender affirming care is the fact that, you know, five plus percent of our population actually identifies as LGBTQ plus. So pretty much whatever you do in medicine or healthcare, you're going to have queer patients. So gender affirming care is honestly just medicine. 
And I think everyone really needs to sort of embrace that concept. And unfortunately, a lot of our background and training, it's not something that's really formally taught or covered in a lot of formal education pathways. And I feel like in a lot of ways, we're really trying to make up for a lot of historical oppression of that community and really kind of educate and embrace gender-affirming care into medicine. Yeah, so well said. And I have some of your quotes that I was going to ask you to speak into, and you started to speak into one of them. I'm going to quote you, Dr. Peters. This is from your recent MedPage Today opinion piece, which we'll link to in the show notes. And you stated the truth is that the medical field is just beginning to dismantle and emerge from the active oppression and negligence of care that was long practiced against our marginalized queer community. By integrating gender-affirming principles into the foundational practices of medicine, we are doing the bare minimum. We are providing care that has always been medically necessary, but only recently acknowledged as such. Can you speak a little bit more into that history, both sociologically and medically? Yeah, definitely. I mean, sociologically, you know, to this day, we're still entirely ingrained in society with this idea of a gender binary. And that really paints so much of the way that we're really brought up in regards to sort of having a gender put on us. And, you know, I think that gender binary is responsible for so many things like a lot of the harm that's, you know, portrayed against women, and then a lot of concepts like toxic masculinity, and especially for queer people that don't fit into that gender binary. And I alluded to it in that quote, but gender affirming care and surgery, it always has been medically necessary, but it hasn't been available to these patients, because medicine has completely reinforced this gender binary. And if your healthcare needs didn't fit into that, then you didn't deserve care. So in a way, we were treating societal expectations of a gender binary and not actually the people in front of us. And that's caused a lot of harm, especially to the queer community. And I think, especially when we're talking about Western medicine, there is a lot of trauma there. And as a queer person myself, I have my own too. And trying to rebuild those bridges that either never were built or were completely burned down is a very difficult and long project. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it takes hard work and dedication because we are dismantling decades, if not centuries, of oppression where, as you speak to, people have been suffering under this oppression for eternity, really. And it's not a political issue. It's a personal issue. And I'm curious if you can talk about the psychological state that people are coming to you in that are seeking surgical intervention? Yeah, I think it's it's a huge spectrum. There are some patients that, you know, gender-affirming surgery, like it truly is life-saving for them. There are patients that I see that if they are not able to get this intervention, their dysphoria is so bad that their mental health outcomes because of that are almost untenable to the point that, you know, suicide is a very active threat to them. There are some patients that aren't in that extreme of a circumstance, but the impact on their quality of life is such that they can't really do much and they can't go out in the world and they can't thrive and have the family they want to have and have the job they want to have because their dysphoria is so all-consuming. And I get really frustrated in the way that gender-affirming surgery is political. I think for those of us that are in that realm, because it is political, we sort of have to be too. And the reality is, is that no one's healthcare, and which is a basic human right, should be 
argued or advocated against. I hate the fact that gender affirming surgery is political, but it is right now. And, you know, I think those of us need to speak up and especially for these marginalized communities, any of us that do have some element of privilege need to lend that privilege to the community and give them a platform to be heard and raise their voices. Yeah, beautifully said. When you talk about dysphoria, for those that are listening that might not be familiar with what that might be or feel like to live in a sort of contrast to this vessel we've been given or assigned, can you speak into that a little bit so we can develop a deeper empathy? Definitely. And, you know, a lot of this I get from my patients. I'm someone that, you know, I identify as queer, but I don't have dysphoria as it relates to my physical body. And dysphoria is a nuanced and complicated thing. And I think it's different for everyone. There is a narrative of being born in the wrong body. And for some transgender people, that is true. And they endorse that, that, you know, I was born male and I'm female and it's a very binary thing for them. But there's a lot of people that don't feel that way. Um, And a lot of people don't feel that there's necessarily anything wrong with their body, but it's the fact that they identify as female and the entire world and everyone around them will only treat them as male. And that's the source of dysphoria. So it's a little bit different for everyone. And I think there's also a misconception that every single person that transitions seeks medical transition or gender surgery. It's actually the minority. A lot of people will socially transition and then less will actually seek medical or hormonal transition. And then even fewer will actually seek surgery. So physical body is a big part of it, but it's not everything. Yeah. It's interesting. I was going to ask you about that next because you kind of broke it down into a social transition, a hormonal transition, and then a surgical transition. And that each individual is going to choose the path that feels, I guess, like it's going to most affirm what the life, as you said, that they want to live. When we talk about surgical transition, that doesn't mean just one thing either, does it? No, it doesn't. The way that I approach it is trying to really tease out where someone's dysphoria is coming from. And is that a social thing? Is it a medical thing? Or is it a surgical thing? And then when we even look at surgery, we're talking, you know, facial surgery, chest surgery, body contouring, genital surgery, there's a sort of a huge spectrum of potential surgical procedures that someone needs to be affirmed. But it is different for everyone. And those are the conversations you have to have about you know, where is your dysphoria being driven by and where is it coming from? And what can we do to treat your own unique dysphoria? I think there's, as someone that's sort of a queer provider in the community, medicine too, and a lot of the advocacy work I do even in surgical circles is not approaching gender surgery and gender affirming care in a binary manner. If someone transitions, it's not your job as a surgeon to just like flip their image to the opposite end of the binary. It's up to you to actually talk to the person and figure out what their dysphoria stems from, and then treat what they want you to treat, not make them what you think they need to be to fit into a binary view of society. And I think that gets lost sometimes, especially in conservative surgical circles, and even just medicine as a whole. So I think that's really a lot of the message I try to relay these days. 
Yeah, really incredible message because it's like more holistic surgical care than is typically done in surgical circles. Yeah, it's a privileged position to be able to do what I love and operate, but also be from the community and, you know, tie in just a holistic perspective of someone's life and wellness because it all affects one another. It's not separate by any means. Yeah. One of the things, Dr. Peters, that I was really excited to speak with you and connect with you about is what we can do. And first, I think it may be important to illuminate for coaches and clinicians listening what some of the medical barriers are to gender-affirming care surgery, because many of those, I believe, are where we in my community in functional medicine and functional nutrition can come in and help. And even some of those are complicated, like BMI and what we know to be true about BMI. But are there barriers to entry, so to speak, for the surgical interventions? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's pretty hard barriers in terms of the WPATH, which is sort of our governing body, has standards of care, which basically have to be met before insurance providers will actually cover gender surgeries. So in some ways, there's certain conditions like duration of social transition and certain like letters of support from providers to access surgical care. So that's part of it in terms of active barriers. But the other part is really candidacy for surgery. And That's kind of a moving target depending on who you speak to and what someone's particular skill set is and then what the patient's just anatomy and needs are. And it's less of an issue when we start talking about something like facial surgery or chest surgery, but it's a huge, huge issue when we start talking about genital surgery, especially vaginoplasty or phalloplasty. And BMI is really sort of the controversial topic with a lot of providers having pretty strict BMI limits in terms of who they will and will not operate on. And I have sort of a whole host of feelings about that. The reality is, is that I think it's hard to have a super firm number, but there is a certain point at which body distribution and anatomy becomes limiting, where I will see patients that I can't actually technically do what you want me to because of the anatomy that you have. And some of the techniques just frankly will not work. So there are patients that need surgery, but are sitting in a position where they do need to have some pretty significant lifestyle changes in order to actually get to a point where I can safely do what they need me to do. And those are really tough situations sometimes, especially talking about a marginalized community that's already suffering dysphoria and also has often a lot of, you know, social and mental health struggles that are concomitant with that marginalized status. And it's really hard to find resources and find supports and people that can really assist them in that way. Yeah. And that's where I am eager to continue this discussion. But to ask you even right now, Dr. Peters, if you could wave a magic wand, flip a switch, if I could create an army of coaches and clinicians that could help prepare people with empathy for surgical intervention And also help on the other side, because surgery is a big deal. It's a lot to heal from. Like, what would we do? What could we do to help? The way that I look at it, I'm fortunate to be part of this really great multidisciplinary team at OHSU where I work. And 
we have, you know, behavioral health specialists and so many allied health providers, but what's often missing is sort of that outside of academic medicine, outside of OHSU network in terms of like the patient's day-to-day life and functioning. And it's kind of like you said, it's really about just perioperative support, both preoperative, getting ready for surgery and postoperatively. And these surgeries are physically extremely demanding. They're incredibly emotional. And it's very normal to have all kinds of fluctuations in you know, how you're feeling afterwards. And I think it's very difficult sometimes, especially in patients that come in with you know more severe mental health struggles and challenges to really find a safe post-operative support plan for them. And part of that feels like the rate limiting stuff is there's not a lot of places in the community that are super well-versed in being able to handle a lot of this post-operative care and also do it in a gender-affirming way. And for patients that you know, are seeking surgery and weight loss needs to be something that enters the picture, being able to have those discussions in a manner that isn't triggering to concomitant eating disorders and focusing on what works for them and being able to do trauma-informed care and really embrace everything for that patient to actually feel like everyone's trying to help them and they're part of a team and we are on board with them and not just putting up barriers to deny them what they need. I find it's really a tangled puzzle because there's a lot of oppression in every arena. If we look at the oppression of diet culture, and then, as you said, what can happen with disordered eating for people who have not maybe felt at home in their physicality and how we untangle that with also the oppression of food culture, right? Like where there's just so much to untangle. And also I've found that people who have gone through some sort of surgical intervention, there's a lot that can be in that feels place in that emotional place post-surgically that's hard to discuss because when discussed can lead to more issues of hate or wrongdoing. And so it seems like it's a lot to untangle. No, it definitely is. And even from the perspective of a surgeon working in, you know, a Western medical academic medical center, which has, you know, historically not been kind to LGBTQ plus people, I think there's sometimes a fear even within the community to report a lot of the struggles postoperatively because there's this fear of losing access to care that is in the grand scheme of things relatively new. So it's that double-edged sword where I feel like sometimes we're also not getting the full picture of what we can do to actually help patients. And a lot of that is because we've created and set up a system that makes people scared in some ways to speak up. And one of the least favorite things that I have to do in my job is, you know, have that conversation with someone about you're not a candidate for surgery. And I hate that, especially if it's somebody that, you know, has had previous struggles with their weight and potentially had disordered eating and then having to really go down that pathway. But I also have to be honest that if it's something I can't do, I, I, I can't do it. Right. So it's, right. it's very tricky. And especially for that population, it does sometimes feel like we have a long way to go in terms of being able to still be involved with and sort of overarchingly walk from through that part of their care. But that piece is missing. 
Yeah, you speak into it really well, and I really appreciate the comprehensive understanding you bring to articulating the care. I'm up for the challenge, so I'm in, and I know many of the people I'm training are in as well. It's a long journey ahead. Knowing that you have the ears of many coaches and clinicians and nutritionists, is there anything that we didn't speak into that you wish we knew to help the work you do? Yeah, I think the one thing I want to say is I feel like as someone that went through medical training, there's this sort of false narrative that I think accompanies especially care of the transgender community that it's, you know, extraordinarily difficult. And I have actually found that to be like furthest from the truth. The reality is, is that if you can find a way to genuinely care for and connect with the transgender community, they're like the most motivated, positive, and just appreciative people I've ever had the privilege to care for in medicine. And especially as a surgeon, I think it's an incredibly privileged population because they are like more motivated for their care than even you are, which is a very rare dynamic in healthcare. So I kind of shut down that false narrative. And I really encourage people to challenge themselves and get involved. The one disclaimer with that is, you know, I sort of have this conversation with any new resident or medical student or anyone kind of coming through our clinic is we have to sit down and have that conversation about trauma-informed care and gender-affirming care and proper ways to interact with the community. Because ultimately, if you want to get into this type of care and caring for this population, I think you should. And I think it's your responsibility, but it's also your responsibility to make sure that you're not unconsciously inflicting harm because you haven't taken time to educate yourself. And I think you have to keep in mind that, you know, someone else's dignity is more important than your early mistakes and maybe not taking the time to really prepare yourself that you should. So that's the one thing I like to kind of caution people about. Yeah, a thousand percent. Thank you for the reframe. I agree in that kind of open-hearted place we get to move into. We may make mistakes, we may be uncomfortable, but it's a path forward and there's so rewarding. And linking back to the importance of trauma-informed care is really key. Dr. Peters, thank you for the work that you do and for joining me here today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. The 15-Minute Matrix is brought to you by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. Check out the latest in functional nutrition at functionalnutritionlab.com forward slash blog. The 15-Minute Matrix is produced, mixed, and edited by Rowan Bradley with production support from Natalie Merrill and the team at the Functional Nutrition Alliance. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com. And if you'd like to be notified by email each week about our podcast releases, head on over to 15minutematrix.com forward slash notify. Also, please feel free to get in touch with us. We would love to hear your thoughts, your feedback, and who you'd like to hear next on the podcast. You can email us at ask at 15minutematrix.com. 